I believe that morally you should never make a judgment about another human being unless that person asserts to having that judgment made about them. So to mark a person's work when they have not accepted that um, is, is, to me, immoral because it's for judging another human being without them having the right to say whether they want to be judged or not. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Welcome to episode four of the Rethinking Education podcast, which features the second half of my epic conversation with Ian Cunningham, one of my all-time educational heroes. I don't always agree with everything that Ian says, but every time I speak with him, I find myself thinking about it for weeks afterwards, and this conversation was no different. In the first half of my conversation with Ian, in what was episode two, we spoke about the origins of self-managed learning, the work he has done in using and developing the approach with many of the world's largest and most successful organisations, and we touched upon some of his concerns with the mainstream schooling model. In this episode, Ian relates the incredible story of how he started what later became known as the Self-Managed Learning College in his house. We also explore in more detail why Ian thinks schools are such a bad idea and what he means when he says that we need to move into a new educational paradigm. I began by asking Ian about a piece of work he did a few years ago where he identified around 80 modes of learning that adults can use to learn stuff and around 50 odd modes of learning that young people use and that sitting in a classroom with a teacher is just one such mode of learning. Well, we started with, with and we wrote a handbook of work-based learning, which published in 2004, um, where we'd identified, I think, about 89 different approaches. And then we did a later a book on uh, business-focused learning and development. Could you just rattle a few off quickly, just to sort of give listeners a flavour of what you mean by modes of learning? Right. Well, if you take schools, so with young people, we found 57 different ways of learning. So if I give you the example of Coco as a student, because I can mention her name because she's been in the local PES. So um, she was a girl who came and, and she... Uh, had been pretty much kicked out of school. I mean, I don't know whether she was formally excluded, but uh, she was certainly criticised for uh, the fact that she just doodled all the time. And she was labelled with ADHD and dyslexia. So she came and she just doodled and draw cartoons, you know, when she came. Uh, but she said that she learned visually. So she decided to, to do a law GCSE in what would be in year 10. I don't know why she decided to law law because I've not really worked with her. I, I was working with her at the time. It was because the law GCSE was being discontinued the following year. Yeah. But why she chose law, you may know better than I would. Because, But it was so, but she said in the interview in the, in the local paper that she said she's a visual learner and that, that therefore what she was doing to learn for instance, about the different role of the barristers and solicitors was she drew them with speech bubbles so that she could learn how a barrister, what a barrister's role was different from a solicitor's because she'd probably have to know that for the law GCSE. Um, and 
uh, I remember just say I, I was sitting with her one time and said, well, would you like to meet a lawyer? So she said, yes. So we bring in a lawyer and she sits down and talks to the lawyer. If she said no, we wouldn't have done it. Would you like to see law in action? Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Suppose we go down to the magistrate's court. OK, so we go down to the magistrate's court, see law in action. Now, all of that is, you know, so there's examples. A person who's in the profession is a good example of someone to learn from, because how the hell do you know about how these professions work? It's um, we have girls who, you know, we have two girls who said we like to be vets. And then you get the vet to say, can you take them for a week? So work placement is a good example, but also him talking about it. So talking with somebody who's an expert um, and they do the work placements. Um, if on the film about us with in East Sussex, which is on YouTube, um, and it's uh, and there you see, for instance, there's a girl who said, "This is a school-based program we were running." She said she'd like to be a netball coach. So we said, "Well, have you spoken to your netball coach about what's involved?" No, because why would she? You know, it's a school. You don't, <laughs> you don't ask for things. So we encouraged her to go on and talk to her. So it's shown on the film, slightly artificial. That she's asking the netball coach, well, how did you get to do this and what did you do? And the netball coach said, well, I went to Loughborough and did this and, you know, etc. And then she's talking with her mom. There's a little bit where she's walking on the road talking about how she'd learned that from. So there's the link to parents there. So people who are expert in something uh, as a good example of um, what people can do to learn. But, but uh, the interesting assumption is, that a lot of young people, for instance, want to learn online. And yet we find that's not true, given options. We have students who go, I just want to go through worksheets, or I just want you to talk me through this. Or uh, Sam, who was the one doing the TEDx talk, uh, I was working with him doing science stuff and sort of filling in. And he would say, I just want to sit in the corner and read and then come over to you and ask you a question. So then he'd sit in, and then he'd come over and say, I'm struggling with this bit about electromagnetism. And so you then respond to it. So that's a different way of learning than somebody who says, I don't really know anything about this subject. I had somebody who said, I don't really know what geography is. So I sat down and then just explained what you learn from geography and we looked at some maps and things. And they said, well, that's fine. I now know what geography is. I'll decide sometime in the future. Well, <laughs> so that's just talking to me as someone knows about geography. Um, so people learn in different ways. We go on lots of visits. We bring in people who are expert. We uh, shadowing somebody I've, I've mentioned already as a way in, in the work context that's a great way of learning. The witness approach, you see that on the film, where there's a boy in a group uh, which was seen as low-performing group. That's why they were given to us, because we get the difficult kids obviously given to us when we go in school. And he um, was thinking he liked to, to write books. Now, maybe he won't write books. It doesn't really matter. So they invited in uh, a children's author called Jane Hissey. And so you see them, first of all, planning that. So the group is planning how to how to help John to think about the questions to ask an author. And then they're sitting in the library and then John introduces the group and then you see the masking questions of Jane Hissey and then she's talking through some aspects of, of uh, producing a novel. Um, so that's an ex we call it a witness approach. In other words, if you've got an expert the thing you don't want them to do is to come along and make a presentation because they have to kind of guess what the person wants to know. We all say to people, you do not prepare anything. Just come and the students will ask the questions because the person asking the questions is the one who's in the lead. The person who asks the questions is the one who's dictating the agenda in a sense. So so we, so we 
that's a very powerful approach. But and of course, there's all the usual online stuff that people will use and, you know, but in maths, you know, some people like the Khan Academy. Some people go, "Oh, that's crap! I just want to, uh, I just want somebody to help me with this piece of maths." Or, um, so we go to exhibitions, going to art galleries. Um, but again, when we go to, to places, it's different from a school. Uh, the first trip we made when the learning college was in my house was we went up to London Aquarium, and our students went with different agendas. So one person was going to draw. Uh, he was wanting to draw octopuses and things like this. Uh, two or three of them were interested in environmental things, and they wanted to go and talk to some of the staff about how they dealt with environmental issues. Uh, uh, there was a guy who was into photography. He wanted to take photographs. So they were just scattering around the place doing different things. So in one trip, they could do different things. And uh, you saw school groups with kids with clipboards going around, ticking off things on a clipboard, because everybody was supposed to learn exactly the same thing. Our students were learning all different things. And we actually had Institute of Education uh, did research with our students uh, from the Learner Centre design side. So this was Rose Luckin's team. And what they did was we, uh, to, we had a trip up to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. And the idea was about using technology, uh, not just having, to, well, I think a lot of technology is a solution looking for a problem. In other words, people come up with an interest piece of technology. Let's find a problem to attach it to. Whereas what Rose's team is interested in, and she attached one of her doctoral students to our uh, the college, was to say what piece of technology would help for this. And some of it was quite simple, like uh, for students who have problems writing, well, you could record it. You just saw in talking to them. And they, oh, well, that's interesting. I could actually, yeah. Um, oh, you take photographs. So that's so. Some of it was quite simple technology. You know, not not high tech stuff at all. But it was about saying you could use the technology that didn't exist in my day. You couldn't go around and talk into a little handheld machine and you know record things, or you know be able to take photographs with your phone. So all of those things that that. So that was a lot about recording stuff, you know, that you could go to a place and how how do you record it? How do you make certain I've logged, logged the things I'm learning? Um, and that was, again, uh, that's researched and it's written up. It's in one of Rose's books and also conference papers uh, where they've, they've said, that, you know, how they've worked with our students with different modes of learning. There's just a few examples of, of and, and none of them is to do with the classroom. And and we've in 20 years, no student has ever asked us to record recreate the classroom indeed yeah yeah so smlc um there are learning advisors uh, just for listeners benefits uh, who are often sort of quite subject specific so i was like helped students with science and psychology and sociology and there's people who are really good at maths and music and art and drama and so on um, and they can book out those tutors if they want to they can sort of get that expertise if they want but it's often in a one-to-one -one or small group setting and like you say they don't they don't ask for classrooms so again you know if we're going to if we're going to be trying to prize open this Overton window, I think for people, I'll, I'll include it in the show notes, a link to a document with these uh, 55 or 80 or however many. 57 we've got for young people. Yeah, 57 and, for young people and then yeah. for others for, for adults as well. Um, so that will all be included in the show notes. And there are lots of there are lots of ways of thinking about learning that go beyond the current the current paradigm. So. Um, 
So let's come on to SMLC now. Um, you, you mentioned it briefly just now that it was in your house at first. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how it came about? You've been doing all of this innovative work with all of these organizations and with democratic schools in other countries. I know you were out in Israel for a while, yeah. among, among yeah. other places, and you were thinking, oh, maybe I should do something a bit closer to home. What, what happened around that time? And when, when did that happen? And what was it like those early days of this, like inviting kids into your house, into your actual house? and turning yeah. your house into into a, an alternative education centre. Yeah, I, it started in 1999 because the International Democratic Education Conference was at Summerhill. Uh, and I went because I just thought it was kind of interesting. And I, and I did talk a little bit about self-managed learning there. But that was, of course, in the context of working in organisations. Uh, but I was always interested in Summerhill. I mean, way back from the School for Independent Study, I had a student who did a a placement there as part of her diploma of higher education. She spent, she did a whole project on Summerhill and spent, uh, I think it was like two or three weeks living there, um, doing research on Summerhill. So I'd, I'd visited when Neil's wife was running Summerhill back in the 1970s. Um, so, and there was a guy called Yaakov Heck from, from Hadera in Israel was there, uh, who runs the Institute for Democratic Education. And, said this looks like a stuff that our schools could use could you come to israel for a few weeks so i did that and went around schools around some workshops uh did a session in the university in tel aviv uh and these are kind of radical educational people who are also working with the palestinians so there's a good uh, the hope flowers school in bethlehem which is um palestinian territory um though they've got the wall now right by the side of them apparently um and uh, they were setting up democratic schools. Uh, but again, the value of this was adding a structure into it because they would have like meetings and, you know, vote on things with students. So they might have classrooms and then but the, the decision making and the rules were done as a, in, a, in, a, in an assembly, if you like, with the with students and adults working together. Um, so they then implemented this and it's mentioned in Yakov Hett's book about democratic education and I came back uh, and I just thought well let's talk to some parents and people and uh, and interestingly I, I mean I just putting out feelers around Brighton and got parents meeting with me I had some seminars the, the then director of education got quite interested and we had meetings with head teachers um, but it was actually premature you know he was because we really didn't have any experience drawn but um, Again, that was at an era when I'm talking about 2000, you know, when the narrowness hadn't been quite as bad as it is now. And he was quite interested in the idea that we could implement self-managed learning in Brighton schools and had heads some of the some of his administrative people as well. And we had a series of workshops and I did a workshop at a school just showing teachers how we worked, but it didn't come to anything. Um, and then the meetings with parents and people in schools, I was saying, well, maybe we could set up a school, maybe we could do so, I don't know. And their parents have got, got to do something now, they said. <laughs> We're desperate now. We, our kids have, are out of school, um, legally home educated, but actually, you know, just needing some support. And they as parents couldn't necessarily provide that support. So we started originally in, in just in, in community centres, running these learning groups. So we have a learning group of six, 
by age. So we had we had two we had two groups, a slightly older and a slightly younger group. We had people who then we were had one boy sent by a school because we were in the local paper, and he was um, selective mute. He'd never spoken in four years uh, in school, never done any work, never made eye contact with anybody, even um, at least any adults. You know, and there was all sorts of reasons why that was so, because we found out that the school didn't know why he wasn't speaking, and we found out within the first meeting with him. Uh, mainly because we, you know, we're on first name terms with people. I mean, I'm, I go to him and I say, "Hi, Darren. I'm Ian. You know, <laughs> let's talk about what is, what's going on here and what we how we can help you." You know, and then, and then he was in a group, and so he was talking about these things in a group with with other people. Um, so. Then my wife died and I had a house. So I go, well, and my daughter was at university. Son was long gone. Uh, and so I said, well, let's run it out of my house. So I had 12 students and two learning advisors in the building. I'd already built an office at the top of the garden. Um, and then we put in a, a kind of log cabin with a, it was an art and music room. And then we had a shed for the garden. Of course, the nice thing there is we had a garden, so students grew things, of course. Uh, so I, I, it was nine till one. And so we opened, I opened the back door at 8.30 and students were coming from 8.30. So I had to finish my breakfast well before then. And just, and then the whole of the ground floor was, was and it's in the, there's a film on Meridian and they put a clip in a recent one. Uh, Meridian came and did a, a little program about us. So I had the front room as a learning resource area with computers and desks and the back room as a meeting room and people could sit around. Kitchen was for either cooking or science, depending on uh, the day. Obviously not both at the same time, uh, but people did their, their um, like biology, GCSE uh, science experiments in the, in the kitchen, which were pretty easy. I remember doing... Uh, rennet and milk experiments and sport growing watercress and various other things for GCSE. So we and and um, initially we didn't have the music and art room, so we just also did music and art in the kitchen. But then we created that. We just built a log cabin, so we had a two you know an art section, a music section, and that was it. You know, and we ran for two years. Uh, but we then were getting so many people wanted to come that we went to the youth centre in Brighton. Uh, can you remember anything from the very earliest days? Did you, did you ever sort of think like, "What am I doing? I've just like invited all these kids into <laughs> my house." Like it must have been quite surreal in, in some in some sense because it's literally like working from home in a way in a way that most people wouldn't ever even conceive of. No, I, I, I think people just warned me that, that, you know, they're going to wreck the place, you know, and it's going to be, t I mean, we did uh, on sofa, we had a boy with ADHD, we just throw himself onto the sofa and it did actually break it. Um, but, um, and we had some chairs got broken because they were kind of old chairs that, that, that modern, you know, where the legs are just screwed in. So obviously they'd sometimes collapse. And, uh, uh, but, you know, it was, I just go, What's life about? You know, if parents are this desperate, let's let's have a go at it and let's see what happens. We'd run the groups. We knew that the process worked um, because we've got evidence, you know, like a boy who had been out of school and was very depressed and created a portfolio. This is when we were working out of a youth centre. And then um, 
he managed to get into to six to the education college. Uh, they said we want four GCSE, so he got a C. I think he got a C, a B, and two E's or something like that. <laughs> and, they, and they gave him a place on his portfolio, and he got the prize for the best student in, uh, in his first year there doing a BTEC. Then he got into university, got two one, and, and is now quite a famous illustrator. Um, um, so that was just when we were working out. We were just running them on a Monday morning, and and that was all we were doing. Um, so we did the uh, every morning in the house, and I got the house back at lunchtime every day. Mm, incredible. So we'll come on in a short while to look at the nuts and bolts of how SMLC works, because I think that people are often interested in that, in my experience. And we've talked about some of it already, but I think the best way into thinking or to learning about SMLC is through the young people themselves. And I certainly found that, like, I was sort of aware of your work for a long time. I can't remember when I first learned of it, but I, I remember thinking, wow, this is something that's really interesting. Um, and I can remember asking a long time ago if I could come and visit and you were like, we don't really do visitors because it just disrupts things. And it's just, you know, it's, it's too small an environment to sort of to be able to withstand that sort of it's just going to be, be odd. But you can come to an open day. So I came along to an open day and it was it was held at the place in the centre of Brighton. And I can remember it was meeting the students and talking to them and seeing just how confident and articulate they were and how self-aware and I just thought this is not you know I was teaching at the time and I was like this is not like the kids behave that I deal with every day so I was really interested so I think it would be interesting just to um to share a few examples and there's some excerpts either from from the book there's some research that's been done in the book but I've pulled out a few examples from the book or just from my own experience of having worked there that I think is yeah. a good way to introduce to listeners yeah. about about some of the really quite touching testimonies sometimes that these that these pupils give so the first one of the first ones that I came across was the the, the talk that you mentioned earlier by a, a former student called Sam Watling who did a TEDx talk at the age of 19 called I think it's called our antique education he was only 16 actually. oh 16 my goodness yeah. he and just he, left he gave this this tedx talk. he had aspergers yeah um and he gave a tedx talk it's a brilliant performance it's absolutely he's like bursting with enthusiasm and confidence and you can see that he's nervous and that he's struggling a bit at times but he he just comes through in the audience are, are rooting for him and that's that's well worth a watch um i'll put that i'll put a link to that in the show notes um, you mentioned, you know, so one of the things that I sometimes struggled with with um, with SMLC is how non-interventionist it, it is in that it's a structure, like you say, and it's a holding place and that children, young people go through this process of of uh, that de-schooling. And so for some of them, they, they go through that process quite rapidly and start getting on with stuff. And for some of them, that can take quite a long time. And you mentioned the pupil, sorry, the pupil, the young person. <laughs> Coco, it's deep rooted. Coco, who uh, was there when I joined, I think she was in year eight at the time. And like you say, she was drawing and drawing and drawing, drawing, and she was just um, drawing cartoons and she was drawing a graph, writing a graphic novel essentially. And that's all that she was doing pretty much for, for a lot of the time that she was there. And I can remember, and I didn't really have much to do with her. Um, she wasn't in our learning group, not my learning group. And, um, and But a part of me was thinking, you know, I was going through a process of de-schooling as well. 
well. And I was sort of thinking, you know, this girl isn't doing very much in the way of maths or English or science or geography, history, art, like all of the stuff that we sort of consider to be really important in schools. Like, is this okay that that that, that she's just drawing for, for this, you know, for the whole time? And and um, so she did that for about two years, as far as I can remember. And she sort of got this graphic novel out of her head, which she published. I bought it for my son recently. It's quite it's quite a remarkable piece of work. Um, and then she, it seems that she sort of she came out of this. You know, she got the graphic novel out of her head that she needed to to process. And then she was like, okay, what's out there? And then, as you say, you know, she did a law GCSE in year ten, um, and religion and history, and she did about six or eight GCSEs to, to my knowledge and and she was almost completely self-reliant like she really sort of you know wasn't that responsive when we were in learning group situations and I would ask her about her work and she was like I don't really want to talk to you about it because I just I just want to get on and do it you know she was just very sort of fiercely independent and an incredible person I just thought that's that's a real testament to 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 your faith in this approach that you know you hold them and you you don't necessarily intervene because when you intervene with the best of intentions, you, you might be interrupting some sort of natural process. Like you say, they're in this chrysalis phase and you might be interrupting that process with the best of intentions. And actually, you know, you're making them reliant on you, you know, and you're not you're not allowing them to find their own on switch. So Coco, I think, was a, a fascinating case study. But I'll just share a couple of other quotes from from the students said. Uh, so there's a student that you refer to as Kate in the book. She said um, that, that, like, that learning is the reason I'm alive, really. This was later on, uh, after she'd left the college. I mean, it's the thing that keeps me going, regardless of anything, is always that feeling of how much there is to learn and that I can never stop learning. And like the breathlessness with which she, she talks it almost comes through in this quote. She says, I definitely felt that at the college because I was exposed to, to so many different ideas and so many different subjects, whether they were academic or creative or even just areas that were about personal development. I think that idea that you never stop growing and you've never learned anything and that if you if your purpose in life is just to constantly get better and constantly learn more that can never really be exhausted and I definitely got that at the college. So this you know you couldn't ask for a better example of somebody who has a love of learning they've got the bug for it. Some more examples that I'll share there was one called a boy you refer to as Johnny who was quite deeply unhappy when he when he joined he been a, a, a bully he bullied other children when he was at primary school and had really switched off didn't really do didn't really engage in learning wasn't was considered to be to be not very good at literacy um, there's some quotes from him here where he said I just started to enjoy subjects a lot more he said I started to pick up more stuff as well I started learning the piano I was just enjoying learning more I started enjoying English which is something I really really hated but I ended up enjoying it because they let us write about whatever we wanted as long as it we fulfilled the criteria of what we needed to do and that's something that came across I listened to an interview recently with Peter Gray I know you're familiar with his work yeah. he's, he's, he's very involved with Sudbury Valley and he said that that's often the case that when you take away the compulsion things that were previously considered to be weak areas young people often want to work on those things first you know that when you take away the the mandatory elements they want to you know they're aware of where their sort of their areas for development are and they want to do that under their own steam so that's interesting 
And then he also talked about the feeling that he got at, at Self-Managed Learning College. He said that it was a bit unusual because it wasn't what I was used to. Everyone was very loving and kind and empathetic. So it was quite unusual to be treated with humane respect. The language that, that, that he uses is fascinating. A kind of mature level of respect and kindness through the whole community. And then he said, it's quite a natural thing to become accustomed to. It's almost like going home in some sense. It's like, oh, this is, like, this is what it's supposed to be like when, when you're not somewhere that's, that's where bullying is endemic. This is what it's supposed to feel like. He, he felt like it was natural. Um, and he went on to say, I believe that I was only able to get to where I am now because of SMLC. SMLC helped me develop into a person I feel happy to be, um, which is incredible. There's another, there's another student, Mike, who said um, that although he found it a struggle at first, the lack of structure and the lack of being told what to do, he said, in reality, that's something that I was going to have to face up to at some point in my life anyway. So I guess SMLC did help me in that and helped me to realise that I am the master of my destiny or whatever and that only I can choose where I go. Um, and I could go on. There's, there's lots of examples in the book and I could talk about my own experience. Um, and there is, there is one student who, who's come back now who, who um, now works at the, at the college. Could you tell, tell me a bit, a bit about his backstory? Yeah, um, all the... What you're mentioning is it's an independent researcher called Luke Friedman, and we've had eight, seven studies done by University of Brighton, but um, Luke is an uh, independent researcher and who was chasing up students who had left some time ago. So that's so all the quotes that you mentioned come from an independent study of students who are now um, out in the world of work or academia. Um, but... Um, uh the student i mentioned i mean i can mention his name because he's okay about it it's charlie he he um he had been on the role of a local school but he hadn't attended for a whole year he had uh he calls it asperger's we now have to say have, have functioning autism um and he hadn't really uh, the only time he went out of his house was, was to take the dog for a walk if he saw any young people he would scoop back home because he'd been badly beaten up regularly in school so he just stopped going uh nobody at the school seemed to care uh i was at that time involved with a local cluster of schools and i was the, the vice chair of of it and an ed educational psychologist in the group knew about us and therefore said this you know this is an obvious thing for this boy um and the school reluctantly agreed then to to pay for him to come to us um initially he didn't want to come into the house at this was when it was in my house and so he would come around the side of got to my office and then gradually we'd introduce to students you know we'd get a student to come up an individual coming up and maybe you know him getting to uh, get engaged and because he'd become very paranoid about um being with other young people because of because of his experience and because of his autism so he gradually got used to it and then in the end came into the house and uh and then he he'd obviously missed quite a lot of the uh, schooling so he did a, he got an english gcse but failed his maths uh went to the local education college had two more goes at maths before he passed it then did an access course um and then went on to do a psychology degree at brighton university and during that time he volunteered with us and then that was successful. So after he had 
finished, graduated, he's carrying on part time and still works with us. Um, he did a psychology degree. So obviously we didn't have somebody who could do psychology. I mean, you'd left, I think, at that time. And, and we needed someone to do psychology and sociology. And so uh, it was, you know, we thought it'd be a good idea to hire him for that. What's been interesting is that uh, the morning he's in is the morning where on regular maths tutor is not in. So he ends up tutoring maths. Um, now, this doesn't fit with the assumption that you want person who's really able at a subject. He is someone who hated maths, found it very difficult, um, is probably mildly dyscalculic, you know, and yet uh, students love him helping them. So it, it undermines two assumptions that people make. First of all, that if you're autistic, you're not good socially, and that's nonsense. Uh, some autistic people aren't, but you can learn it, and he's learned. So the autism is a permanent feature of his life. He's going to be autistic for the rest of his life, but but he that doesn't sum him up. You know, there's a real problem with labels, um, and that he he is very gentle and caring, and students love going to him to get help with maths as well as psychology and sociology. Yes, yeah, that's amazing. One thing that one thing that occurred to me just as we were going through those is that like the, the, this idea of bullying. I can remember when I worked at SMLC that it was a very common thread that lots of the students had had either bullied or more commonly been bullied at school. And we'll come on to in the final part of the conversation where we talk about problems and solutions. I think that one of the one of the very serious problems with schooling that often doesn't really get the attention that it deserves is that bullying is rife. Um, and there's lots and lots of of, uh, of examples of young people who are really, really damaged by by what has been said and done to them in the past, or that that happens sometimes, you know, over a period of years. And I know that some of those students who we've just talked about um, have suffered suffered, you know, such bullying for years, um, which is a very common theme. Yeah, and I and I I think at times we'd, we'd had a majority who'd had bullying experiences. I think at the moment it's perhaps not quite a majority, but still, uh, of the current students, there are always some who've had bullying. Um, uh, sometimes related to different things. Interestingly, uh, for instance, in Brighton, um, we uh, what we found in schools is that mixed race kids often get really badly bullied. And, 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 and it's an un, under-investigated issue uh, that, for instance, there are more mixed-race kids than there are black kids in the country. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of interest at the moment in racism and Black Lives Matter, et cetera, and quite rightly so. But what gets missed is mixed race. And we've had kids who, who've got bullied because of that. And, and uh, uh, in other words, sometimes homophobic bullying, um, and autistic kids getting bullied, uh, more introverted. And uh, Susan Cain's book on on introversion is great because it says schools are designed for extroverts, and probably forty percent of the population are introverts. And I'm quite an introverted person, you know, and I I, but I've learned how to do the stuff, you know, the extrovert bits. But I'm I've always been quite introverted, and that's one reason I never found school very congenial. So. Um, and, we, and it's an example of where schools refuse to look beyond when the student leaves. In other words, as far as 
schools are concerned, their only obligation seems to be up to the age in which the student leaves. And we have no obligation at all to what the person does in their later life. Because, for instance, we know that someone who's badly bullied is 2.72 times more likely to suffer psychosis in adult life than the average in the population. I mean, that's really significant. Another piece of research was that there's nearly 100,000 children and I use the word children because that's in the research. By the way, I always say that when I, I have to use children when it's being used by other people. 100,000 children suffer for post-traumatic stress disorder due to bullying. 100,000. Currently, <laughs> this, is, this is a current figure. Uh, and and uh, it's and we, we and of course schools do well. We have anti-bullying weeks. And we have bullying buddies and all this. It's all trivial. It's the rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic syndrome. I mean, it's it's all a waste of time because you're not addressing the social context that the schools are too big and the social arrangements, classrooms, etc., and the social structures don't work and will never work. And that's one of the and so all the tidying up make the classroom work a bit better, having lollipop sticks and nonsense like that. Well, you know. It's nobody's addressing the fact that we know that the bigger the school, the more likely there are to be social problems and relationships between adults and young people and young people themselves get worse the bigger the school. Um, and the, that research is quite sound and a huge amount of studies from the states on this. Uh, so it's a disaster and and it's not i mean don't blame teachers whatever they're trapped within a social system it doesn't work for them either yeah i i certainly feel that the secondary schools in particular are far too large you know we we know about you know dunbar's number this idea that you can sort of have about 150 people who you can sort of have relationships with at any one time and you know there are some places like as i understand it in scandinavia they sort of they have like 150 like space office blocks and then when they need to expand they just build another another building and they so they they, they understand that that this is that this is a useful thing to bear in mind and i used to find that like as a teacher so that like i can remember once i was working in a very large school and there was this incident that happened on the stairs where a, a, a quite a big burly year 11 had pushed a young student down the stairs they hadn't fallen but he'd pushed them and they'd almost fallen and I addressed this this boy and said, "Hey, what are you doing? You know, you just pushed like you can't do that. That's really like not okay." And he wheeled on me and just was sort of like went nose to nose with me and was like, "Do you want some like that?" And I didn't know who this kid was. He'd only been at the school um, for a few weeks. He'd been excluded from a previous school, <clears throat> and um, and. I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. It took me quite a long time to even find out who this child was, this young person, this young man. Um, and then I eventually found out and, and we had to sort of, you know, go and get his head of year. We had to come to me and, and you know, he's, like, we had this really awkward conversation in a corridor where I was supposed to be teaching and this, this, the head of year brought him to me and was, was like you know here's the sort of restorative conversation in the 30 second conversation in the corridor and i sort of said yeah i don't think it's okay and he was like yeah well i don't want you to talk to me like that and and so there was just absolutely zero resolution and it just sort of just felt just like this is just out of control because we like i don't know who he is he doesn't know who i am and and like you say without without that social glue that is so important and having relationships uh, where everybody knows everybody else and every so you need a school where every teacher knows every kid and where every kid knows every teacher 
and if you and if you can't say that you that, that that's the case then your school is too big um and i think that that's a, a huge part of why why this bullying happens because there's this, this sort of the anonymity you know um that you know if you you can you can push a, a, a you know a nameless kid down the stairs because it's just you're seeing out your frustrations but if that's little billy who you sort of you know you know because you know every kid in the school then it's not so easy to push little billy down the stairs so the relationships yeah. are everything yeah and, and it's it's crucial and, and another part of the book it may seem like a a kind of diversion but i looked at all the uh, you know issues of murders in um, american schools because um, uh, Versifully, we don't have guns, but we do have incendiary devices. Since we get arson in school, but it's it's and 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 what you find is it's just, okay. The kids who've done all these horrendous murders, like Columbine and etc., um, were kind of mixed up. But a they were often pairs, so there's that whole thing about peer group. Quite a lot were not individuals, and also um, that that nobody was putting together all the different clues. So. Within the school, there'd be people who would know a little bit about that person, but nobody shared that. It's back to the way we see so much learning in, in how to get people to share stuff because sharing knowledge and it's all whole knowledge management thing. You know, it's not you don't need to know everything. You need to know where to to find out what it is, and it's not necessarily on the internet. You need to know which person to talk to. So in those school, large schools, and they're typically two thousand person schools. 2,000 students per school where they've had these um, violent outbursts. It's been to do with, you know, not putting together those bits of information, not not being in a context where that person was really known. Um, and so they will carry on. There will be more of those murders in the States because they're not solving it. Um, and other countries, of course, have had these issues as well, but not quite as extreme as the USA. And say we, we have those issues, but it's more like, well, the bullying that goes on and arson attacks and vandalism and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that might be a good way to come into to thinking. We've spoken about some features of SMLC already. We've talked about learning groups of six and six really is the magic number, isn't it? Like five is too yep. few and seven is too many. You're quite you're quite um, certain about the, the sixth figure. Um, we talked about learning agreements that they write and the five questions that they work to to arrive at the learning agreement and community meetings, which is how we start and end each day. Um, the problem solving committee is something that I think people might be quite interested to hear about, given that we've just been talking about, you know, there are, of course, you know, issues of friction happen and even incidences of bullying happen within SMLC. Um, so how does that get dealt with um, and how is that different to what would happen in the in the mainstream model? Well, we've evolved things over time, and you obviously also were uh, engaged in developing the restorative justice sort of process. So what we've tried to do is to say there's a sort of series of levels um, where initially you're trying to get students to sort it out for themselves, which it does happen quite a lot of the time. But then if not, then there has to be some kind of restorative justice process, sitting down, talking with people, um, and getting people people to explore you know why things have happened and uh yeah so trying to have those kind of dialogues if you like um uh, but if that doesn't work then there is a need further at the moment we're we're um we're using more well it, we could call it a problem solving committee we've, we've also s uh, taken out of this the Sudbury schools model of 
Judicial Committee, you know, which is another way. But what it is is basically saying, um, well, we need a a way then of of actually not trying to replicate a court, if you like, but but having a, a fair process where students and staff would be joining together to engage with uh, students on an issue. So the last one I did was um, uh, two boys. Well, one boy put in a complaint about another boy in football that he was hitting him off the ball. This is when we were in the youth centre and we would we would go and play indoor football and and uh, there were two boys I think of 12, 13 year olds and they would, you know, one would kick and the other one would have another kick at all. So it, it was getting them in. So getting them in meant me chairing the meeting with two students. So there were three of us, two students and myself. And the idea is that we would need to reach a consensus on what to do, and we'd get them to get the information from them and other people who were in the foot, football match. And basically, it seemed like both of them had been, you know, with six or one and a half dozen of the others. So we, so then we called them and said, right, how about how about? And this was, I remember two students and myself, you know, make an agreement that they both be banned from football for a week, you know, and, you know, were they, or would they accept that and that they, you know, they really need to stop this and so therefore not play football for a week so they could kind of get their heads together and they accepted it and it was accepted by the people. So that's what happened. They were banned from football for a week. So that's kind of a simple example of of a process that, that the restorative justice you know, was kind of bypassed a bit because they were they were sort of saying, well, I want to make a proper complaint about this person. So we said, OK, we'll have to we won't, it's it's not about sitting the two of you together. We'll have to sort of get because they were both kind of ah, no, he's at fault. He's at fault. You know, and so we so we but, so we sorted it out that way. Uh, but you could say it could have been a restorative justice process where you sat down with the two of them and try to get them to talk. But they, they got very heated. And so we just got let's let's just try and cool it and find another way around yes absolutely and i remember so yeah i did introduce some of the restorative practice when i was there and i think that that was as, as a sort of as a, as a earlier layer so it was like it but it only works if there's willingness on both parties to come together and have that and have that conversation that's sort of mediated and sometimes you know there is a need for you know there are adults in the room and there are adults who can make suggestions and the idea that the consequence sort of fits the 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 incident that led to this problem for example like banning football for a week is like you know it makes it makes good sense that it would be a football based solution to a football based problem you know um so and there's there's the other thing that i wanted to just touch on briefly is the financials side of smlc so when it started am i right in thinking that it was at least part funded by the council that students wouldn't have to pay to go and now there now the council withdrew that support a number of years ago and now there is a there is a it's fee paying although it's very sort of budget compared to what people pay to go to to private schools yeah yeah, uh, there was a time when there was a process called uh, Alternative Provision Fund uh, that the local authority has to submit um, the numbers of students by age to the to the government to get their grant. Because obviously, the more young people they have in their in the age range, the more money they get. So there's a per capita amount, which is around six thousand pounds for for um, secondary education, for instance, but it will vary slightly across local authorities. Um, and the students are out of school. So what 
that was allowed at the time was that those students who were being educated otherwise, because the law says you should go to school or something else, it says school or otherwise is the word. So they were otherwise in a sense home educated, but they could tap into funding by virtue of being entered on the submission by the council to the government, which would then uh, get the council the money that could then be passed on to who was providing. So so in that case, um, it's £3,990 per year is what it costs us to run the, the college. Interestingly, a lot less expensive than state schools uh, and, and even less and even lower cost than uh, private schools. Um, and that went for a couple of years. So that was great because... Um, in a way, it's what the government should do. You know that every child should be on the list that the cat that the council sends up to the government, and then those that are in schools should get the standard amount, which is six thousand pounds per student goes to the school, um, or a bit less because the local authority takes off money. Uh, and those who are being educated otherwise can be also funded from state. Why not? But it, 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 the government decided to stop that, and you have a block grant to the local authority. Um, at that time, when we originally worked with the council quite closely, that was an interesting and conservative administration. We'd, have, we'd had a go at the first round of free school and, and not got anywhere because obviously the way we work doesn't fit. It's not the free schools aren't free schools and we were certainly not going to be acceptable to the government. Uh, but we had the support of a conservative council um, and we were even written into the local authorities' strategic plan for schooling, it was mentioned us as a model of what, where secondary education could go, interestingly. I mean, so we were we were working with the, the uh, head of the education side of the council, it's children and young people side, and, and the director for strategy for schools. We were working quite closely with him, and they were great. And then the Greens got control of the council and along with the uh, Labour group, um, both of whom had a kind of Stalinist orientation. So it was like you have to do what you're told or else. So everybody should be forced to go to their local school, whether they like it or not. In other words, neither the Greens nor the Labour Party were prepared to uh, uh, carry out the law as it's as, and and the. Um, Therefore, they withdrew the funding from us. We had support from the Conservative group on the on the Children and Young People's Committee, and the opposition was from the Greens and the Labour Party. It's fascinating that, isn't it? Because I think that there's almost maybe it's just my own my own sort of assumption that that parties of the left would be more willing to embrace these sort of more progressive educational models. But actually, you found that it was when the Greens and the Labour Party got in that they sort of want there to be a good local school for every child. And it was much more of a, like you mentioned the word Stalinist, it was much more of a sort of a statist, just like one size fits all approach that was taken. This is, this is at the local council level, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, we had a big campaign and and uh, went a couple of times to the committee and it, we didn't get anywhere. Um, we did know that, for instance, the deputy chair of the Greens was sympathetic towards us, but the Greens pretend there isn't a whip, but there was. I mean, she was actually abused into a position where she was made to vote uh, against her uh, good judgment. 
because she actually could see what, you know. And we had people, we had parents writing in, we had schools sort of saying, look, we've sent kids to them, you know, and they're doing a great job. Yeah, because absolutely, because there are schools where, you know, there were school refusers or young people who were really, really struggling for whatever reason, and they were like, okay, we need some alternative provision for this young person. Um, and that was happening, wasn't it? You were getting a few school, refer- yeah. school referrals. Yeah, and we, of course, worked in schools. We've done, uh, we've worked in eight local authorities with schools running self-managed learning programs inside the schools. Um, and so we got a lot of evidence about what we're doing. And of course, all the companies we work with and saying, look, you know, if you think that the NHS and the cabinet office and the bank of England, all these people are a bunch of freaks. Well, it's, you know, come on. It's, <laughs> this is, this is mainstream thinking we're talking about here. Mm. Um, but of course, yeah doesn't fit their their model so that was it it's very unfortunate and so now it's now it's fee paying it's like i say it's 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 as cheap it runs as cheap as it can and it's a it runs it's a lot more cost effective than a school is isn't it a school cost is it something like three and a half thousand pounds per per pupil or five thousand or something it's more like five thousand the the council gets about six thousand per pupil yeah but then they top slice it, and then they and so the score gets five thousand something or other usually. Right. Uh, but we, the way we run it is we've got three levels. So um, if a person is completely uh, broke, I mean if they're on on uh, benefits, then they don't pay anything because we have a local trust fund that pays their fees, and that's about six six students, I think. Then there are those which have fallen on hard times, especially now, you know where. Uh, uh, people have been self-employed, for instance, and where we have a hardship fund where they can get a very much reduced fee. At the moment, we've got down to like 25%. So we've got we've raised money for a hardship fund. I mean, the things that I go and do workshops for people and the money goes into a hardship fund. So I, whenever I do anything for people, because they sometimes ask me to come and talk to them and to, I say, okay, but you've got to pay something into a hardship fund. I'm not coming if you don't pay into the hardship fund. Um, and I've got a, you know, somebody I know has a foundation. So we've got money in our hardship fund. That means that um, people, well, fifty percent would be kind of guaranteed if they're in hard times, and we can maybe get a little bit more out of that. So that means that they might they might be uh, spending like a hundred pounds a term or something, which is like a pound a pound a week, less than a pound a week. Um, so uh, and then the people who are in work and have got good jobs, pay £3,990 per year. I'd like to, to wrap, wrap this, this little section up before we move on to the final bit of the conversation. I know this has been a long conversation, but you've had a long and illustrious career and there's a lot to, there's a lot to talk about, um, especially because this is, for me, is, this is game-changing information. You know, this changes how we should think about education. Um, so it's, it's important to spend the time. Uh, what I would like, quite like to do, you start um, chapter two in the book with uh, another running that you had with Ofsted. This was when I was, when I was at SMLC, but I wasn't actually there on the day that they appeared uh, unannounced one morning um, when Ofsted tried to shut the place down as an illegal school. Mm. Um, could you, could you uh, talk about, a bit about your memories of that time? Yeah, I was, we were in the, 
we'd moved from my house into the Brighton Youth Centre and uh, rented part of it because uh, obviously the youth centre is mainly used after 3.30. Um, so we had uh, a series of rooms on the first floor. And so it was up a staircase. So I was sitting on the landing doing some work and there was someone beating on the door. So went downstairs and there were these, there's a man and a woman and they had, um, uh, you know, badges with them and saying we're from Ofsted and we're here to close down and, an illegal school. So I, I said, oh, well, you better come in. And I first of all, I said, well, I've got to check you out because you could be anybody and we have very strong safeguarding principles here. So I've got to, I need to know, I need a phone number to phone to find out if you are legitimate and on a legitimate visit. So that, of course, delayed for a while, which gave me a bit of chance to clear my head and go and warn people that we had inspectors with us. Um, so then they, I said, okay, you know, eventually I found somebody who could um, say they were legit. So, okay, and then come sit on the landing. So then they were talking to me and saying, ask what we did here. And I said, well, we can't be a school, I said, because we don't have any classrooms. We don't have teachers. We don't have a curriculum. We don't have a standard timetable. We don't have anything that would be seen as a school. Um, and we are otherwise in law and we're perfectly legal because this is otherwise not, not school. Um, and uh, otherwise education is is um, enshrined in law since the 1944 Education Act. Um, anyway, they said, we want to come and talk to the students. So they uh, went round. At this time, they, there was this supposed to be this rule that if people did 20 hours, they would be made to school when we were 20 hours. And they asked students, uh, "How? what hours are you here? And they said nine to one, which makes 20 hours in the week. Uh, and they went around and talked to students and asked them what they were doing. And, and then they came to, in fact, uh, they came to one boy who, uh, I can't remember what he was doing, but they were asking him what his plans were. And he said, well, you know, I'm taking some GCSEs this year and some next year, and I want to go to MIT to do computer science because I don't think any of the British universities are good enough. Um, and... Uh, after they finished talking to him, uh, the, 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 the two inspectors said, we've got to go and have a chat. And I, and I, and I was saying to him, look, well, doesn't that demonstrate we don't have a, a curriculum? And he said, you've got a broader curriculum in any school because your students can study anything they want. And I've heard, you know, from here, you know, the, amount, the, the, the range of the things that people are studying here. Um, and they went and had a chat for 10 minutes and came out and said, well, you're obviously not a school. We'll do a report. I said, can we get a copy of the report? And they said, well, we report to the DFE. So... Uh, so when we got a letter from the DfE in the December, this was the October Department for Education sent a letter saying, on that date you were not a school. It's quite clever wording, isn't it? Because they were saying, on the date at which the Ofsted visitors came, you were not a school, and therefore, but if you ever become a school, you have to register. And they went on all about that kind of stuff. And so we said, well, could we have a copy of the report? And they said no. And Ofsted said no. So then we appealed just inside so the inter and they w w still wouldn't give it to us they said we don't want we don't want people to know the criteria that they're using to close down schools i'm thinking wait a minute so how can anybody know whether they're running a school or not if Ofsted don't want people to know what the criteria they use for judging whether something's a school or not i mean we think that it's a good report and that and we did discuss in the governors should we go to the uh uh information kind of ombudsperson. Yeah, freedom you know. of information request or something. Yeah, we did a freedom of information request and that was turned down because they're saying this is not legitimate to release this kind of information. Both the Department for Education and Ofsted 
So in the end, we felt sleeping dogs lie. You know, it's if we push it, we could cause trouble for ourselves. If we won, if we got the report out with the Department of Education, apart from it being nice to know that they're going to give a good report, because I think we're very impressed. You know, I think, well, I know they were impressed, you know, just the way in which the two people spoke. Because I went round with the, the man, the woman went off separately uh, talking to students and they talked to all the students. And there was about 18, I think, at that time we had, um, including a boy who had been sent to us by Harry, who'd come from the Patcham House Special School. He was sitting in the office strumming a guitar, I seem to remember and, <laughs> and they often inspector asked him what, what he was doing there. And they, of course, they didn't check, you know, which, we, we got someone from a school, you know, Harry. And Harry took his GCSEs in the art building, of course, at the end of the year. Uh, anyway, that was the story of Ofsted. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And, uh, and I think that it's a testament to how well organised you are, like as an individual and the way that you run this. Maybe it's your background in like, you know, running business schools and so on that you, you've got it all nailed down. Like you've got sort of board of trustees and, and board of governors and you're the chair of governors and all of the safeguarding stuff and policies and frameworks and everything is nailed down so that when people come to call, like you've got, you've, you've got a really robust answer to them. And like you say, you know the law, you know, it's very impressive the way that you've that you, the way that you've kept this organisation going for twenty years, and it's in robust health now. It's now up to about is there about forty or fifty? Uh, yeah, it will be forty in January. About thirty six at the moment. Yeah, um, and I keep in touch with it. My good friend Lars um, still still works there as a learning advisor, yeah. so I, I keep abreast of what's happening there, and it's. Um, it's good to see, and it's quite it's quite some achievement that you've pulled off there. And it might sort of feel like sometimes I think in the book you said that some some government official or civil servant referred to it as a boutique operation, which they meant in a sort of in a dismissive way. They were like, "Oh, this is just you know this is not for the mainstream. This is just boutique." But you were thinking, "Well, boutiques are quite good. You know, people people <laughs> like boutique stuff." Um, but but um, it's not in any way a, a small achievement that you've, that you've pulled off in, in making this thing happen and last as it has done. Um, and, the, 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 you know, the, the lives that these young people have gone on to lead and the, the, the way that they talk about the transformational nature of their experience at SMLC is really, really impressive. OK. Um, <clears throat> when we were planning this yesterday, if you remember, so the next part of the conversation is positive things about education. And your initial response was, can we skip this bit? Because <laughs> I couldn't really think of any. And then I was thinking, so you're not a fan of schooling. We've seen that already. And we're going to come on to that in the final yeah. section. We talk about the new, this new paradigm of education that we could maybe move into. Because I think we really need to, you know, that, as you say, the, the current system is not fit for purpose. And I, I can spot, so you've got Sapiens on the shelf behind you there. I don't yeah. know if you've read um, Harari's latest one, which is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Um, but it's, a, it's a, a really hair-raising read about all of the sort of outlines. He talks about this in Homo Deus as well a little bit, about the, the really significant challenges that we face as a species. And, you know, education has got to be the answer to that. And at the moment, I don't think that the education system is, is fit for the purpose of <laughs> enabling us to survive this, this incredibly, uh, you know, tumultuous century that we're, that we're living through. Um, so anyway, so I thought, well, we'd broaden the scope of that question and say like, the, like positive things about 
education more widely. We've heard lots of examples, but maybe if you talk about some of the examples of stuff that's happening internationally in the democratic schooling movement, uh, possibly to do with homeschooling or the alternative sector, uh, talk about some green shoots, some some uh, some areas for hope. Yeah, well, I, I did reflect a bit more on my own experiences, and I and I, I think doing my PhD was something I enjoyed. For instance, so I think universities have a great role in being research places. Uh, they're repositories of knowledge, and it's great, you know. And when we were running the school for independent study, to back to this is an example in education, was we drew on the resources of the of the polytechnic. So students would want to know. Uh, we had a student who wanted to do uh, astrophysics. Now and as a special interest. So we had a central studies, which was group-based and project-based, and then people had a special interest that they could pursue the other half. And uh, so I took him to the physics department. When we asked the physics department as a department, were they interested in supporting what we were doing? They said, no, this is just daft. We want to teach physics. But I found a guy who'd got a doctorate in astrophysics, and he was having to teach first-year physics undergraduates never got a chance to do astrophysics so i was delighted because i said we've got a student here you'll get stuff on your timetable you know in other words he gets an allowance that we pass over um to the to the department so you can do less of your teaching if you take this student on and he thought this was wonderful but and, a, and it's one interesting example of when you do it in show the individual you know in other words to get through at the human level it can work really well like you've talked about the human level about the, the college. Um, and so uh, it, it was important to have a university which was which had somebody who got astrophysicist on his badge, you know, so to speak, because then the student could go and spend and do two tutorials with the guy and learn astrophysics. So, but of course, my, my view would be uh, that what you need is these experts around the place so that students can go and ask them questions and learn things from. They shouldn't be in charge of the, you know, as you know, in the book, I talk about the two roles. So the first stage, our learning group advisors with the learning group is about understanding the person, their problems, their processes of learning and the patterns of behavior, etc. So we have to find out about the person. Once we know about them, then they can go and learn skills and subject knowledge so that's the S world, skills, subject, knowledge, specialization, solutions. And it, what that really came a lot from the experience with the School for Independent Study. We at the center were the ones who really knew our students. And we could then go out and get people who've got expertise to help people learn that. So we needed, the, we needed all these academic departments and people doing research in these areas so that we could actually utilize them. So I'm all in favor of having that it's just that they shouldn't they shouldn't be in the lead and they shouldn't be wasting their time lecturing and things like that which is just ridiculous because people are researchers don't want to lecture anyway so so anyway we showed a different model of a university if you like it became it's now university of east london um and doing a phd because i could learn whatever i wanted you know so actually you only get any freedom in the education until you get well there's been more control on phds when i did a phd you could pretty much, as long as you could convince your supervisor, and yeah. so 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 I can see the positives there. Globally, I think you're saying that uh, there's the there's international democratic education conference that works every year, and it's itself a wonderful model because there's no organisation. 
what happens is people meet and there's a, there's a sort of general assembly during the conference, which typically lasts for a week, and they agree on the where the venue will be two years hence. So then people have two years to plan it. And then, then, then the next year that rolls on. So there's a there's a conference every year, and it's run by that people in that country. So this year's was Nepal, um, and the Nepali there's a Nepali ashram there that ran this year's conference, which was all online, and the assembly had to be online and agreed. I think they would already agreed that they would would go back to Nepal in person. And next year is going to be in the UK because of Summer Hill's 100th anniversary. So, but there's no organization. There's no, there's nobody in charge. It just, it's, it's, uh, it, and it works really well. Uh, so there's nobody, you have to pay fees to join and anything like that. You know, you, anyone can go to it and they pay and there's bursaries for people going to the conference and things like that. And you can go on day tickets and things. Um, and the, what, and that brings together a lot of people around the world. And there is a huge growth, especially in, in um, uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, in Korea, there's now about 500 democratic schools. Japan has a democratic university, the Tokyo Shuri University, as well as schools. Um, you, you, uh, Australia has democratic schools. Uh, India. Um, so there's a lot of development there. Taiwan is fantastic. Um and the United States, Canada. Um, so there's a growth around the world. In 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 South America, Brazil is um, is the Luminae schools. There's, so there's a whole load of people getting involved with this uh, globally and recognizing that it's just not working. And especially those ex colonies, you know, like in Africa, where people have been uh, foisted on them a European model that is quite inappropriate to the culture of those countries. And that's still going on. And and, and the, unfortunately, the British aid budget is used to prop up British-style education, which is disastrous in many of these countries. And But there are local people who are starting to think differently and work differently. Um, and that's the that's going to be the saviour there, is, is more empowered local leaders who, who are taking up a different way of thinking about learning. Yes. Great. I mean, it's, it's important to recognise that. And I think that I'm sometimes very UK centric and very even within the UK, very England centric in my concerns. And things are, like I say, very traditional, very um, narrowly focused at the moment. But there is a whole world of, uh, of possibility out there. And there are people who are walking and talking these practices um, and achieving great success. And it's really it's really encouraging to hear um, that you know there's such growth especially um, in Korea and, and Japan and the places that you mentioned um, just briefly you you mentioned S, you sort of touched upon S mode learning there can you talk a little bit about P mode and S mode learning because I think that this is quite a key idea that you that for me I found this really eye-opening as a way of just thinking really clearly about the the role of subject-based teaching but also where the limitations of that are and the way that that can be contrasted with the P mode yeah. So uh, when we go into schools, for instance, uh, so um, schools have either said, oh, we've got these kids are in out of exclusion. Can you help? Or uh, we've got these gifted and talented kids and we don't know what to do with them. Um, and so we've ended up running Sunrise Learning Programme with people in groups. So, um, well, let's take the example of, of, a, of a, because 
the deputy principal wrote a piece about Oakfield and it's on the film. And uh, afterward, worked with the um, gifted and talented, so-called. I was asked to work with a typical group year eight boys in and out of exclusion. So the, the classic thing is that they would um, come in and, you know, well, one boy, a typical model was to come in, tell the teacher to F off, get sent home you know, go and nick some alcohol on his way home, sit and play games and watch the TV and go, they're the mugs in school. I'm enjoying myself sitting here and at home, you know. So that was, he had a nice little pattern going. So we have to understand the pattern. He had a pattern that was not going to be productive in the future, of course. And um, and schools really didn't understand what was going on for these kids because so they were on report. They had these report cards that they would bring I had to take them to each class. So when they were allowed in, and then they, if they were excluded, of course they weren't. They only were allowed back to come to the program. Actually, they, just, but otherwise they weren't allowed into classrooms. But but when they were had come back from a temporary exclusion, they would be on report. And they so the first meeting, they're putting these in front of me, and I'm going, I'm not doing anything. But we will decide as a group about your behaviour. <laughs> I'm not going to decide this. We will decide on the rules. We will decide on. How are you going to work? And they they wanted to have a three strikes and you're out rule, for instance. And the first meeting, we had a rule about not climbing on the chairs. We were meeting in the youth centre, and the, yeah, these are typical 13 year old boys, you know, uh, in a, of, of the exclusion variety. So anyway, one boy was disobeyed the the three strikes and you're out. So I said to everybody, look, he's got three strikes against his name. I was putting it on a whiteboard. Yeah, he should go out. Should go back. So he'd never had any feedback from his peers before because always the teachers sent him home. So, and I was working with the, uh, what was called assistant director for for the year group. So she'd be ex-school uh, receptionist. She was fantastic to work with because she knew more kids than any teacher. Actually, <laughs> so she was brilliant. So she said how he was shocked to get this feedback from his peers that what he was doing wasn't acceptable. And when we were policing the rules in future, he was always one of those that was big on it. So a lot of the time, what I'm doing in that group is to find out who are you? Who are these What as a person? What kind of patterns of behavior have you got, which are, in these cases, not functional? What, what are the problems that you're facing? You know, what are your mental processes? How do you think? So that's the P world. And then we could go out and say, so let's look at what the solutions to these things would be. But let's start with the problem. You know, you're being excluded, you know, all the time. And the school's thinking you might all end up with being permanently excluded by the end of the year because they were worried about all six of them. Um, none were, by the way. And they also had less report cards through the year. Um and so you're starting in that world, and that's what we say at the college. The first week is is about us learning about the students and them themselves learning about themselves by asking the questions. So, we, for instance, when they come, first question is, where have you been? What's been your past experience in life? You are today 100% result of the past. So if we are to understand you, we need to know what's your past experience. So they come and they will, and we get them to do something called a lifeline, which is showing the ups and downs of their life, and that they – will say things like, oh, at this age, you know, I, I realized I was no good at art, so I stopped it. Although, you know, I was trying to learn a musical instrument and the tutor said you never make a musician. You know, incidentally, that was a boy who ended up going to music college and doing a music degree and got a 2-1. Um, but, but having been told he's no good at music. Um, so uh, 
that's understanding that person as a whole person. And then we say, well, who are you now? You know, what kind of person are you? And what's important to you? What are your values? That's what you care about. And what are your beliefs? That is what do you hold to be true? And they're two different concepts. So values are about what you care about. I value this and not that. So like these boys who were in exclusion, they were going, well, maybe we'd like to be footballers. So they valued that notion of footballing and, and celebrity. Um, but they also started to say, yeah, well, okay, we won't do that because I got along the uh, guy I worked with at the Football Association who was the national player development coach for under-16s, turned up in his England tracksuit, and pretty soon uh, they, they realised they weren't going to be professional footballers. So then they go, well, we're a bit practical. So then we go to the Education College. Um, so all the time we're finding out about them, they're finding out about themselves. You know, so they we go to FE College and they they really like the body shop. We have people working on car bodies and then carpentry and plumbing. And so then they go, you know, one boy said, I might like to work in the garage, you know, be a uh, get an apprenticeship. Down. So we go down to the garage and the and the supervisor goes, well, here's here's my laptop and here's how I order parts. And it's all it's all about electronics here. It, you're not under the car with an oily rag and a spanner. You, it's mostly it's about solving electronic problems, computing, etc. And you need to know that stuff, and you need to do your NVQ if you want to earn any money. So then, at the end of the year, um, the principal we ask we you know do a review because we're saying when they do a program, the kids have got to justify that they've been on this program and that it's been of value. So the principal came to this group and said to Sean, he said, "Well, how come you're now?" can take an interest in science and maths and English. And he said, I want to, if I want to do an apprenticeship, I want to get GCEs in this, in this subject. So I'm now, but before that, he had no idea of what he wanted to do in life or what was important to him. And now he's got a, a, a notion of a lifestyle. This is a boy whose mother had walked out just before Christmas, standards a taxi driver, um, who was obviously not around, would give him some, some um, his you know lunch money, he would then spend it on cigarettes and, and and sweets uh so was pretty unhealthy boy uh and incidentally one of his objectives was to give up smoking and the group so that was you know i've got a problem smoking solve solution how do i give it up and the group held him to it and at penultimate meeting michael was smelling at sean and said yeah i can smell tobacco on you've been smoking and oh, no, i haven't i've just been with people who smoke so they searched his bag searched his pockets and said okay you know you're on so that's what the americans call a tough love it was the peer group thing they they so you got to get the problems clear before you look at the solutions. So then he could, if the solutions were very easy. Then it was, yeah, I'll now learn those things in school because I want to do, I, I now can see I could be an apprentice in that garage downtown and I could have a good career and I could earn money and, you know. Um, so the whole thing is find out about that. And so there's a role for people like myself who are doing that. And, and as you said earlier, I don't need to know about, the kind of thing that the uh, the person might be wanting to learn. I just need to know they want to learn that, and therefore I've got to go and find somebody. So in the college, if I'm working with people, um, it would be, oh, okay, uh, you've identified math, so let's see whether you want to talk to Lars about that, and then, but then let's see what level do you, do you want to do. You want to do math GCSE, okay, but what grade would you like? Because are you one of those who just wants a four to be able to get into college? Or are you, you know, wanting to do, say, a science career where you want an eight or nine? Because you've got to get a high grade. 
And that varies. So I need to understand the problem that person has. Like I'm here and I need to be there. You know, I mean, I'm at the moment kind of weak on mass and I want to be able to pass, you know, so that's the gap. But that's when the S mode comes in. That's when you need to go to someone who's an expert. So that's somebody who can teach skills, teach subject knowledge, teach specializations, teach solutions, but not teach classroom wise, but, you know, help that person to learn those things that would help them to solve the problem that they have. Yeah. And therefore we want the experts around, but but it's like the civil service say, it's, do you want the experts on tap, but not on top? I like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> so we want, we want people with expertise. That's why universities are important because they're places with expertise, but what they should is to liberate students to, to be able to go around the university, wherever, and get help with whatever they want to learn, but they need them people like we did in the School for Independent Study at the centre, helping them to find out who they want to be and what they want to learn and then helping them to make links because otherwise they can't do it for themselves. You know, So there's a role for adults. There's a role for us. Absolutely. And this, I think, is the, the reason that I like this so much is that it really helped me to understand something about my own interest in, in education, which is that I'm much more interested in developing young people and helping develop them as people. As I'm a P-mode guy. I'm interested in the person and their patterns and the problems that they face and so on. And there are other people in schools who are really into their subjects and they're just passionate about teaching the next generation of historians or scientists or, you know, actors and dramas or English uh, writers and so on. Um, and we need both of those people. And I think that that's what you recognize. So you've got P mode is people, patterns, problems, and so on. S mode is like, what are the solutions? And those solutions might well be subject focused. You need people with specialisms and so on. And skills. And skills, yeah. And it seems that, that, that what you want to do as a, as a generic process is to start with P and then go yeah. to S. And, yeah. and the problem with schools is that they start with S and then stay there, and they don't really care who the P is. Every, all the P, no. all the P's get the same S. Yeah. Or yeah. So there's two errors. One is to start with P and go to S, and the schools go S. Try to make the. So I, I always say the example is that as a chemist, um, I uh, could have gone from my degree to pharmaceutical world and made pills to sort out mental health. Uh, I then worked in the psychotherapy world and faced with the same problem, mental health, you sit and talk to somebody. Psychotherapists and chemists have never been known to talk to each other or exist in the same world. I mean, so if you're a chemist presented with the problem of mental health, the only solution you know is to create a pill in your identity as a chemist. If you're a psychotherapist, the only solution you have, you know that pills exist but your livelihood is dependent on sitting and talking to people and you can't prescribe. Obviously the psychiatrists become a bit in the middle because the psychiatrists can prescribe, but a psychotherapist of course can't prescribe drugs and they psychotherapists would argue we don't need drugs. So I'll just sit and talk to you. And a chemist is going, this is a chemical problem. I can make a pill. Duh, no problem. <laughs> and, and, there's never ever, as far as I know, any time which any those two worlds meet, and yet they're dealing with a huge problem, global problem of mental health that is growing every year, and there's no proper systemic discussion about this. Psychiatrists try a bit because they are a bit in the middle. Okay, so that they can prescribe, but so help me out. How does this link to the P mode and S mode thing? 
Well, I'm, I'm saying that schools, if you learn a solution in school, you then distort a problem to fit the solution you've got available. So that what education does is to turn you to distort problems and narrow them down to meet what you can do. So when I'm talking about environmental problems, then, you know, you could be a biologist, you can be a biologist studying the environment. You can be a geographer, you can be a historian, you can be political science, you can, and, but you're coming at it from your world. And, and what, education doesn't do is to help people so this is a generic guilt is to think systemically because it must be generic because by definition systems are about all the bits of the system so so thinking systemically comes out of that p world of of saying well we have a problem about the environment and okay we've got these experts in these various areas but actually what you need is to put it all together we have to you know it's a political problem it's a geographical problem. It's a problem of, of, you know, chemists creating plastics, for goodness sake, and not thinking about where they end up. Or, um, so it needs an integrated way of, of learning such that you, you bring those, those things together. And that's not the only area, but, I mean, that's a good example of the, what is driving us, you know, as a planet to destruction is, is an inability to think systemically. Um, because education says don't, you know, ed- education says find a solution and then go and fix it across to problems to make money out of it, you know, because that's the way you earn a living, meaning so you earn a living by making money by offering your solution as a solution to that problem. So the chemist says, I can make you a pill. Uh, and the therapist says, I can sit and talk to people, give me the money, you know, and both sides are wanting investment. You know, how do we invest as a society? <laughs> you know, and that's a political problem. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it, and then it says, and it's also an organizational problem. It's to do with organization behavior. How do we understand that? How do we understand, um, you know, what's happening in the economy? You know, and that's an economic problem. But uh, economists study things as an economic problem, <laughs> not as a social problem. <laughs> it's quite a widespread problem, I think. And it's something that I'm guilty of myself, that sometimes I have a hammer. Like at the, at the moment, I'm obsessed with implementation science. And to be fair, I do think that that's the answer to to lots of the problems that we face, um, that people don't know how to implement ideas effectively. And so things just like good ideas just fall over all the time because people don't know about change management. Yeah. But I definitely am a hammer in looking in, in search of nails and I sort of you know I, 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 I it's a very easy trap to fall into I think to think I've got I've got the solution now I need to go and find problems to fit it and actually we need to take a step back start with P and go to S I think that that's really powerful and it was it was illustrated quite nicely recently in a Twitter exchange I had with somebody who is um, quite a traditionally minded uh, teacher um, former teacher and we were talking about the knowledge rich curriculum and I was sort of saying you know it's good at some things like if you want to teach kids about you know geography that's a really effective thing to do but if you want to if you want to do other things if you want to teach children you know how to speak and listen effectively or how to solve problems or you know how to learn independently and go off on the go off piece and so on then the knowledge rich curriculum isn't going to do that and this person was arguing that it would and uh, so i said so is it the case that and you know whatever your educational aim a knowledge rich curriculum is the answer and they said yes which which <laughs> which seems to me to be an overestimation of the of the power of the knowledge rich curriculum uh, as important as knowledge is
So we will now move into the final stage of this of this uh, epic conversation, which is about <laughs> problems and solutions, um, about education or learning generally. And I really want to get into this idea of the new educational paradigm that you talk about in your book. And the reason that you say that we need a new educational paradigm is that you think that schools are a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, and I think that this is a fascinating thing to talk about. And I, again, this is not something new, you know, like de-schooling society and similar books were written a long time ago. Um, but you, so yesterday when we were talking, you were saying that, um, you know, we now think that the Victorian workhouse was weird. And in a hundred years time, you think that people will look back and think that schools are weird. Um, this is a strong claim, and I think that there are some people who I know who work in schools who would be possibly offended even, or like sort of very strongly, strongly disagree. Um, and I could point to, you know, examples of people in the teaching profession um, who are, you know, head teachers or classroom teachers or consultants who are doing really, really interesting innovative work and and addressing some of the agendas that we both are interested in about around developing more autonomy and and more confident sort of articulate um act, proactive citizens and so on and that, that that work can be happening within the school system so i'd just like to break this open a little bit and just get into this idea about why is it that you think schools are such a bad idea before we get into what you think we should be doing instead well, I think I think uh, whilst we can argue that I mean you've made the case that the knowledge-rich curriculum is a, is is a newer kind of take, but it's not a new notion. And the notion of an institution which uh, size doesn't matter. I mean, if we take the general notion of a school, it's size is not an issue. Uh, that it's learning subjects, so therefore the well-being of people. Uh, is not an issue. Whereas we know that um, if we look at future life satisfaction, the possession of, of, of grades, good grades, is not correlated at all with later satisfaction in adult life. Now, I think that the, uh, that an educational organisation should be due, judged on that basis. In other words, I think that judging uh, on on exam grades, just having exams which grade people, is demeaning. I think to individuals. It creates failure. It creates uh, social division. It creates criminality. It creates all sorts of things. In other words, schools are creating a social environment which is often quite unpleasant to be in. Um, uh, the level of, I mentioned the level of imprisonment in this country is just outrageous to take, an, you know, and it, it might be seen as an extreme example, um, health issues. We know that, for instance, Children are more likely to be obese if they are um, not um, in a directed, that they don't have an internal locus of control. If they have an external locus of control, then more it's somebody else's problem, my weight, therefore they become obese. And, and then people die as a result of this. I mean, we're not, it's, it's, these are serious issues. We are talking about life and death issues, that people's life expectancy is reduced if they play along with the school agenda. Um, now, interestingly, of course, uh, there are schools, the Eatons of this world, who don't play that agenda. They know that it's all about all the other stuff because, you know, if you want to be a prime minister, then the best thing is to go to Eton. But what you're learning, I mean, they have, I think, two theatres there 
now. They just built a second one. Um, so if you take again in the in the acting profession, a number of old uh, old Etonians is quite high. Um, we know it's all resources that are, 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 are siphoned off into these facilities. If you take large schools and think environmentally, just to, just as an example, um, join a school term it's reckoned that 18% of car journeys are to do with the school run. So think of the level of pollution that is being created by 18% of daily car journeys to do with the school run. Well, if you've got a local school walk around the corner where you can walk or cycle or skateboard or whatever. Um, so it's simply the, the embedded energy in a school. If you build big schools with lots of concrete and glass, and I mean, the energy consumption and the cost of those, which is, of course, written off. You know, we are cheaper and we have to pay rent schools don't pay rent they get this building given to them free by the state where there's a lot of embedded energy and a huge cost millions pounds cost and where we we know that for instance we don't need a lot of the, the buildings that we're going to and you know already the talk post covid is well, we need all these office blocks so what are you going to do with them well we run our program out of an office building <laughs> It's not a problem. We, you know, we miss the outdoor space, but we've got a park across the road. So you can run things out of shops and office buildings. We're looking at maybe converting a pub as our next place or a, or a department store if we wanted to be really big, you know, but then we'd break it down into, you know, uh, we just need a, a convenient building. A, a big house is obviously ideal. But um, uh, So if we think about the premises, if we think about that, we think about um, – you know, schools sift on social class grounds. Um, so the whole exam system, which gives a mark, you know, school, I mean, the best companies don't work that way. If you do, um, you know, if I, I work with companies and we do look at the criteria for jobs, break it down and you do a 360 degree feedback, we're just doing it that for our coordinator at the moment. So our coordinator is doing this. So the students and staff and myself and the chair of trustees will be, but but we're looking at like something like 10 criteria there, not one. So if you put a mark on the bottom of an, of an what does that mean? You know, um, I remember when we were doing this with the School for Independent Study and we had a student, I set up a, a, a learning group for the degree, the final degree year. And we had a woman who had kind of lots of wacky ideas, you know, and some of it were complete bonkers. You know, but it was really creative. So you could have said this was a failure or it could be a first, you know, and, and it's like you wouldn't really know. In fact, my son, I remember being told this at Cambridge when he decided for his English final year dissertation to do it on William Burroughs. and was told William Burroughs isn't a, an acceptable writer. So he said, well, I want to do it anyway. So I think in any other college, he would have been failed. I mean, in King's, he got a first and the prize for the best student. Uh, but but um, he, he chose the right college to go to. Um, so there's a madness in this, you know, you put a single mark against a person, this this person, and, and so we say, this person is a grade nine, this one is a grade, but, but it doesn't distinguish between one person who might be very creative, but not, you know, but say their spelling is poor and somebody else who's great, the spelling and English is great, but they're not so creative and they end up with the same mark. I mean that's a nonsense. So, so that we I make the case in the book about we need difference in organisations. All the research says that if you get a group of high IQ people, they will perform worse than a group 
which has a various variations in IQ and variations in background, variations in qualifications. They will perform better given the same kind of project or problem to work on. Uh, a huge amount of research on that. And there's no research which points the other way that you want homo homogeneity. But schools want to create homogeneity. So the whole process is doomed, I think. Um, and uh, it, 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 obviously, you could revolutionize schools. I made an example in the States where you know, big school were failure. So we break the bill. You know, a school is not a building. So instead of having a 2,000 person school, you have 10, 200 person schools and you share resources. And, you know, and, and there's been examples of that in this country of, of uh, trying to go with small schools inside, you know, mini schools. Um, but you still have the same exam system, you still have the same classrooms, etc. So it doesn't solve it, it makes it a little bit better just as I'm sure the consultants and the teachers you're talking to make things a little bit better. But ultimately, they buy into um, a model which is prepared to grade people and demean individuals by virtue of saying you are a failure to, that, to, to a person. You didn't get your grade for in GCSE, therefore you failed, and the person carries that stigma through life. I mean, I meet, I meet, uh, I've got friends who failed 11 plus and they're my age, 77, and they still remember failing the 11 plus and that they were labeled a failure. I mean, they've had successful careers since then, but but they were judged as a failure and the emotional, mental conflict that caused. And uh, I was watching the program on, I don't know, you saw it, on Kent, where they still have 11 plus. And there was this uh, black mother with a kid and she was working all days or to, to get private tuition for her daughter to get into past the 11 plus and the daughter failed to pass the 11 plus and mum and daughter were like distraught it was like the end of my life the girl was pretty much saying my life's ended you know i've <laughs> i've failed the 11 plus that's it i'm 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 on the rubbish heap from now um horrendous absolutely horrendous and schools are prepared to do this and the 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 I talk in the book about you know bullied kids are just collateral damage, you know it's just oh well it has to happen so, you know I mean I was I went to the bullying uh, subcommittee there was a review committee on bullying done by the council and they had witnesses and I went along and, and there was a school also witness saying we've got it down from twenty percent to fifteen percent per term well that's still one hundred and fifty kids being beaten up every day. Is that, and that's something to be proud about. <laughs> Although there was a psychologist who came along. I'm spending my time developing resilience in kids. Oh, yeah, blame the victim. That's what that means, is it's you. You're not resilient enough. Therefore, you are failing because you're not resilient enough because you're getting bullied. So you have to learn to be more resilient to start yourself being bullied, as opposed to there's a systemic problem here, <laughs> you know, and, and, to, and of course, being a psychologist, they're going to blame the individual because that's what psychologists are trained to do because... Psychology is about studying individuals, not social context. So it can't work. And that's why I'm saying we need a new paradigm and that we are one model amongst many models. We're not saying the model. We're saying we're a model, you know, that we are here to, 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 to show people that it can be done another way. But it's not we're not saying copiers. I and mean, when we are setting up another college in another part of the country because of demand, because we get people saying, is there somewhere like you in our locality? And we say, sorry, no, you know, we're the only place. And there are other people who are doing interesting things, and there's Sand School and Summerhill, but 
Summerhill's course boarding school, of course, and we don't agree with boarding education, but yes, yeah. I mean, that's it's interesting to hear you talking like this because when I've sort of seen you talk about about schooling before, I've often thought that it's almost with a sort of like a sense of sort of quite like detached bemusement that you just sort of think this is all just wrong headed and you're just going to not even like you said before, you're not even going to bother trying to get SNL happening in schools. You're just going to do your own thing. Yeah. Um, but but the passion with which you with which you feel this stuff. Um, really comes across there, and that, that these are these are very serious issues. I think that there are, again, I've I've sort of got the the voice of teachers in the back of my mind because this is like I I've spent a lot of my time sort of engaging with teachers, and I th- again I think that some of them might find it quite difficult to hear. So, for example, when you said, um, you know, that the, the, the schools are set up to get kids to pass exams and that they don't care about the, the people themselves, you know, I think that some people would find that, you know, difficult to listen to because they would think that's not true. Like, I passionately care about my kids and some people are very heavily in, invested in pastoral work, for example. But I think that I think that we need to separate out. I can see it from both sides and I can see it though, so that while individual teachers within that system are absolutely compassionate like giving generous kind thoughtful intelligent incredibly hard-working people who are doing incredible work i think that when you zoom out and look at the system and the idea that you know we treasure what we measure right and we, we don't measure self-harm as an outcome of schools there is no self-harm league table but we know that self-harm is endemic in schools and, and in the book you write about how when children are self-harming or when they're having sort of you know mental health problems problems from the schools the bottom line for the school is this is a problem because that kid isn't going to perform in the exam because they're having they're having you know these these problems but for the child the most important learning that they could undergo at that point is what's going on in my life why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling and how can I is it possible Mm. to learn my way out of this can I learn how to be another way um, so I think when you zoom out and look at the systemic level, I think that what you say is true, that although there are people working very, very compassionately within oh, yeah. pastoral work, that the system itself is not interested in the fact, yeah, they like, have, an, like, as you say, an acceptable level of bullying and like 10% is fine. And also, in my experience, I've been very, very passionate about bullying throughout my career and often tried to sort of to push that forward and as an agenda and even when even when the school is really on it and when they've got this big vocal sort of you know like campaign and it's like you know there's there's peer mentors have been trained up and they set up even then the kids say we just don't report it like there's so much that doesn't get reported or even when it does get reported even then nothing gets done or there's a restorative conversation but then it just carries on the next week and I know then that the restorative process doesn't work and so I'm just going to have to suck this up and for young for many many young people you know i mean you know suicides among young people you write about as well there's been an increase in the numbers of suicides um so we're not talking about something that's in the abstract here we're talking about very very real damage that is done um because of the way that that we've set schools up i believe that morally you should never make a judgment about another human being unless that person asserts to having that judgment made about them so to mark a person's work when they have not accepted that um, is, is to me, immoral because it's a judging another human being without them having the right to say whether they want to be judged or not. Um, back to the driving test, you can choose. You, 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 if you cha- choose to take the test, you are saying, OK, I'm, I'm choosing to do this, but I don't have to take a driving test because if you don't want to drive, you don't take the driving test. It's a free choice. That's, that's morally right. 
Um, but I, but I, you should not. Ju- so I, I ask students about if they want, you know, to know why, what this would be at a level, for instance. I remember uh, in the school for instance study that an uh, Ethiopian student, she was single parent. She'd had to leave Ethiopia because she was under threat of being assassinated. Her English wasn't very good. And other people were being like nice to her by not really giving a feedback on her writing. They were just going, well, it just needs a bit of tidying up. And and I, and I said, so look, you know, she wrote me a piece. I'd not met her before, but she was working in a group that I was working with. And it was an error in every line. And I said, look, um, there's about, do you want to know how, how this comes over? Yeah. Well, so there's an error in every line. That means, but if I go through it with the red pen, you know, that's every line. I mean, and she said, oh, but I want that to tell, show, show me. So I didn't necessarily use the red pen, but I went through every line with her about showing her where the errors were. And she, that's great. Nobody's done that before because they're all being kind to her because it's poor old Azrat, you know, um, and Azrat actually, uh, went on to do a PhD um, later on because she was really interested in child development. She had a child herself and she was studying the difference between Ethiopian practices and British practices. And she came to my wedding, you know, her and her daughter, uh, I remember, because, you know, she, because she really appreciated getting that feedback. But it was like she made the choice because she could have said, well, no, I just want to get away with this, you know, or I don't really want to. But she said, I want to know because <laughs> I'm not going to learn. So so the nice, kind lecturers were not being kind at all. They didn't ask her what she wanted. Yeah, yeah. I agree that you, it's not OK to force somebody to sit an exam. I, I just don't think that that's OK. And that seems to be an, like an unquestioned uh, assumption of the education system that, that we're doing good here and that, that exams are like keys and that, that they open the qualifications, open doors and that they lead you. That this is an emancipatory mechanism. People really believe in that. And I think that it can it can serve as that, you know, in, oh, some, yeah. in some cases. Yeah. But like you say, this idea that therefore we're going to fail lots of other people and force them through that and i've seen it you know with with young people who've been assessed repeatedly you know endlessly at least six times a year so they have one sort of fairly high stakes assessment a, a term usually and they know that they not, are not good at this particular subject or that they're not interested in it and to just make them keep having to do that when they know that they're not good at it is just deeply unethical i think and and i think yeah. that it's a, a big problem and and the waste of of linear exams the idea that everything is now because when i was teaching it was you know modular you know science exams you know and you could resit them kids would have a few cracks of the whip but now it's all on that final one month period at the end of year 11 and we force all of them through that single bottleneck and it's a one-shot thing and if you mess it up like then that's that's it you know and it's just so a unfair and unethical and 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 just ill like timed like kids at age sort of 14 to 16 it's just when you know they're going through puberty their social life is taking off they're interested in all kinds of things and exploring the culture like that's maybe if you if you could if you had to pick the worst possible time to stick the high stakes exams that everyone has to go through if you have to have them I would put it at age, you know, 14 to 16. I think that that's just like the worst time to do it. The new educational paradigm 
um, thinking about like how can we transition out of and I'm really interested to hear this because when I've spoken to you in the past I can remember sort of asking you you know like like how could we scale up like SML is the way to go how could we scale this up and you always sort of said I'm not really that interested in scaling this up like I'm, I'm happy for this to just be the number that it is and you're now saying that you're setting up a second college which is great um, but but if we're going to transition into a new paradigm then this is a scaling up problem it's a different model which is going to take a long time to create but one of the things you can do like the mini school thing is you can take an existing school uh, building and then say well let's just divide it up into a series of smaller entities um there was a local authority um that was trying to move in this direction some years ago of having what they called learning centers and we originally called ourselves a learning center um where, and they were using it more at the sort of sixth form level of a person could be on the roll in one place, but then they could go somewhere else if they if that place was better equipped, say the lab was better, or that that place had a better music facility, or you didn't need to have a music facility everywhere. I mean, like my, my son was in the choir for Redbridge, you know, not for the school, because the school wasn't very musical, but he could do his singing across the local authority. So... So it's starting to do this P2S thing, saying you could have bits that are there and then, you know, you go out into other places. Um, the one that the mini school approach that was purpose built out in Clacton had three mini schools of 350. And then on the fourth side was a library and a health centre and all the other things. So you had this, a, a, a big quadrangle between four, but there also was resources and there was Obviously, the many schools shared playing fields and things like that, because that's another thing, huge waste of of resources like playing fields and how often are they used and uh, long holidays where they're not used and, and uh, you know, libraries and science equipment and things like that which could be opened up. I mean, some schools do it uh, and uh, are open to the community, you know, where they've got a swimming pool, for instance, with a school I work with in Portsmouth there, the, the pool was open to the public in the evenings um, and for students during the day. But you could do a lot more of that shared resourcing. If you start from, we'll have like the P2S stuff. If you start with a central place, you know, resources that are available to, to, to other people fairly easily. And it's more cost effective and less car journeys and all sorts of things, you know, because you can you could have units in, in shops anywhere. You know, I mean, I'm saying you could have things modeled i take the 150 you know point and therefore i think 100 is the maximum that you could have as a small entity and you call it a small school if you like um because you've got adults and all the rest of it and you know so so taking the dunbar number 100 is is probably right for the number of students maximum uh we we might go up to if we get new premises we might go up to 48 but that's why we're wanting to set up a new place is to say the answer is lots of this all over the country, you know. Also save village schools. You know, you, what's been happening in Staffordshire with um, um, uh, the support of the council. You know, there was a, you know, a, a village school that was down to five kids and they wanted to close it. And then she's opened, the head opened it to home ed. And now it's a thriving school because there's lots of home ed kids come in and do uh, flexi schooling. And flexi schooling is legal. You know, any school could say we flexi school. That is, you can come in for one day, two days a week. You know, it's it's uh, the governors of a school can agree to flexi school, and yet very few will. But 
she's now saved the village school and that is benefit for the village because the village was becoming just the second home place. I mean, I've been to the village and um, a lot of the, the, the buildings are second homes. So eventually it was just going to disappear. You know, the, the local people would have nothing. And yet now the local people have got a thriving school because all those flexi school kids come with per capita money. So actually, so what you've got is home home ed, and and now they have you know support for home ed kids built into it and etc. So what's the problem with that? You know, I mean that would rescue small schools are being closed all the time in this country, and it's a disgrace because it's it's having an impact on local communities. I mean they're some of the nicest schools, you know, because they are oh, infant schools or or you know primary schools in a in a village, and it's a it's a community place and the things are shared and and you know etc um but again you've got community halls sometimes in places and a school you know but actually you don't need two separate buildings you need buildings which are open to everybody at different times okay so 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 we can scale it up but in a different it's not scaling it up by making bigger schools or uh you know by by having more than 100 kids you could run a self-managed learning college i i think with actually 50 but i because I think you, that's about a maximum you can get sitting around in a circle. Yeah, yeah. But but there's no problem with it, and we've proved, as have been small school, other small school, that it's also economic. You can run it economically, because that's the thing that's put against small schools, especially if you if you just take over disused shops and and offices and pubs and all sorts of <laughs> i mean you know absolutely there are spaces that we can use um and i really like this idea of 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 making things much more local and small scale i i, I do think that it's necessary i mean it is where it, it starts to get difficult to see how this transition is going to happen and i do think that even within large schools um it's possible to to run things along much more self-managed lines partly like you say through through um you know having schools within schools approach so let's just flesh out this idea of the, of how the new educational paradigm um contrasts with the traditional schooling you you include a table in the book that's in uh, that's in chapter 1 and in and at the end of the book as well and the first item there is what we've just been talking about in the traditional paradigm learning is organized by institutions like schools and colleges this is seen as the only proper learning and in the new educational paradigm learning is something that is seen that happens anywhere and it's not necessarily in an organized setting but could you just talk through some of the other key sort of ideas about how these ideas contrast and what you're talking about when you talk about a new educational paradigm? So that would be an example of where, um, yes, you would have centres and you would have people being able to choose. Because the other thing is, of course, uh, not an imposed curriculum is, is a core piece of this, which, of course, was true in the UK up until the 1960s. And I remember in the 60s, people joking about these stupid French people who have got a national curriculum. I mean, and the, and teachers actually talked about, well, it's impossible. To, they, they said, we can't have a national curriculum in this country. I mean, this was this was only back in the 60s. Uh, and and people genuinely thought it wasn't feasible. And of course, the current mode is to sell where the 60s was a failure etc but a david gribble who unfortunately died uh this year uh, wrote a letter to the paper saying isn't it interesting they did this test on people of different ages math tests and the people who did best were the old old age older people 
of, of my age uh, and in the 60s. And he said, isn't it interesting? They were the ones who went to the freer kind of schools, the, 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 the Plowden primaries, that if we, it, you test people on mass knowledge, and it's supposed to be we oldies wouldn't know this stuff, and yet when you give the test to different age groups, there actually is an inverse relationship to what you'd expect. In other words, the people over 65 scored the best. And they're the ones who've been at school in a different kind of mode, no national curriculum, um, you know, uh, no Ofsted. Uh, I can remember Tim Brighouse talking about when he went to uh, Yorkshire with, I can't remember the name of the director of education, quite famous guy, and he would be, you know, supposed to go around and inspect the school, and they would go to the school, and and he would say, this 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 lifts right, it looks like a nice place, and so we're not, uh, and, and we're going to chat to a lot. That was the inspection, you know, it was, uh, and it was basically, how can we, do you need any help here? What do you need? You know, it's obviously going fine. We can see it's all right. And then the teacher's going, oh, well, we're not going to, it's a nice day today, so we're not going to the classroom. We're going down to the pond and fish for the, for the day, you know, or whatever, <laughs> which would be perfectly reasonable. Uh, and because um, there were no sats and no, you know, there was unfortunately 11 plus which is which was the problem but once the 11 plus was going i think again plus was going in some parts of the country by that time anyway but um so i, I think no imposed cur content curriculum i put down there is, is a key thing it just doesn't it is not the way forward um and i and i think that therefore more democratic model of working so joint decision making as opposed to hierarchical um and i got the traditional model is teachers impose the tests and and whether in the new paradigm to, to students choose they want to take tests. And there are different kinds of tests emerging now. The uh, city of learning, Brighton is one of the cities of learning. And I was listening to them the other day and they have these ideas of badges, which are electronic and that you can, and that they are in areas like creativity and, and all the rest of all the things that are being dismissed by the knowledge rich curriculum. These are more uh, employers and some of the schools, but but anybody can get involved. So in the city of learning, which Brighton is is pioneering alongside Plymouth, uh, but they've been going elsewhere for a long time, is notions that is, it is about you can learn anywhere, that you can learn whatever you want and you get a badge for it, which is a is an electronic badge. And behind it is then all the stuff that is, so it's like a record of achievement, which we were experimenting with back in the 70s, you know, using records of achievement. Um, and... That kind of thing works really well. And it's already starting to happen there. And what they're saying with these badges is people could do them anywhere. You know, you could do them in a school. I think Von Dean's doing some of them. But you could do them through the youth, a youth club or you could do them through someone like us. Or, or, um, and there's, there's various city and guilds are involved with it. And there's, it's international sort of development is this idea of badges. And that you, and obviously it's not very well recognised at the moment, but they are saying employers are coming on board and saying we'll recognize these where someone gets a badge for creativity and that they've devastated their creative ability that will be a factor in their favor uh, against someone who's just got a boring cv with five gcses and nothing else in it and certainly not art or music or any of the creative subjects that have done the eback you know <laughs> and this is the this is the opposite of the eback and it's already in existence now I don't. I think this. You know, I'm. I think I have to watch it with this badging thing. I don't. You know, it, but it's at least moving in the right direction. But it's also a free choice. You know, 
what the idea is individuals choose do they want do i want to take this badge you know do i want to get a badge for this and they can create their own curriculum if you like it has to be assessed of course and that's where they've got to, you know they saw this the teachers raised the issue about quality assurance and who's going to make certain these badges are meaningful and and also uh, that they are attached to an individual if you like in other words you can't have somebody else do the work for you so that they you get a badge, but somebody else is, and you've nicked it off somebody else. So they're saying all of this is now going to be um, encrypted stuff and, and um, you know, blockchains development to, to make it so so secure. Um, so that that is that is now happening. I'm on board with that for sure. I think that I think that young people should be able to get to choose whether and when they they sit assessments like high stakes assessments uh, certainly um, and I don't think that it would be that hard we talked about this in the first episode of the podcast I don't think that it would be that hard to organize assessments in maths or geography or art say along the same lines that we have them in music grades where you can you can sit the test when you want you don't have to sit a test you know you can be perfectly good at any of those things without ever sitting a test so assessments aren't necessary for learning which is something that some people seem to think um, and I'm really interested in this idea of exploring alternative methods of assessment, as you mentioned. Uh, give us a few more. What are the differences between the new paradigm and the existing traditional paradigm? Well, I think it's, it's about relationships, and I talk about we're always on first-name terms. So, you know, that is it's important symbolically. You know, people think that's a bit trivial, but it's actually really important, and, and the rights of children. So, like, we ask people, you know, like an end of a trial week sometimes and uh, and they say oh what's great is i can go to the toilet when i want or it's great i can go to the kitchen and get a drink of water when i want you know and i can't do that in school now that can sound simple but it's that kind of right to say the child has a right so if it, there are there is no need for classrooms in this model uh, unless children choose to but but these badges are nothing to do with classrooms they're to do with going off and doing practical things that they get a badge for and that makes sense and it's also doing the things that employers say they want. And it doesn't necessarily go against having tests in, in, in academic subjects. It's just saying there's another model that can run alongside and how do you get that um, accepted? So, I mean, I've mentioned the notion of progression is a nonsense and you don't, so if a person is, doesn't appear to be pro progressing, you you don't get uptight about it. It's like cocoa thing. You, you, you know, you've got to have, I, I, I mean, we were going to, by the way, Uckfield, until the deputy principal there got a principal's job, do everybody uh, come into a self-managed learning program in year seven? So I think that's I think there are four form entry there. So we'd have, however, it would be uh, something like 120 quid or whatever. I don't know. And they would all be in learning groups. And the idea being that we would get uh, year eight students to take self-managed learning program as wanted to volunteer and then those would be the learning group advisors when they're in year nine for the year seven so we would have you know supervised by teachers but that actually it would be tas uh, and other people like uh, youth workers there's all sorts of people we used at uckfield and the ex-police liaison officer was was appointed as a assistant director of year so they were already doing some interesting recruitments so we could have run a program across the whole of year seven in which you're saying those people would then be thinking through what do I want to do? And also the transition being easier from the small primary schools, because a lot of them came from village schools to go to Uckfield and, the, 
you know, size difference and as you know, transition problems. Um, and, you know, don't bother about SATS results or whatever, because everyone's in a group by, it, it, there's no street setting, there's no streaming here. It's just everyone's in a group and they can then start to learn to pursue whatever and start to use the school expertise in a different kind of way. Now that could have led on to, you know, more interesting and exciting things. But it was like a second stage. First stage has been trying it out and proving it. And we had the research done by Brighton Uni. And the student who did the research got the prize for the best dissertation in the whole of the School of Education. So got something like 95%, which is ludicrous. But as she said, that's great inflation. <laughs> um, so she, she got the, uh, whatever the prize is, that was Nikki Sankey, who came to work with us. But, but she did the research when she was at the uni. And so we could start to do that and we could start to um, unwind things. I think uniforms, there's no evidence that uniforms help with behaviour uh, or anything. Um, plenty, plenty of countries do without them. Yeah, and there's no evidence they're any use. We don't impose homework. It's about people working wherever, so they may do some work at home, of course, but the, the notion... Because uh, it was Peter Gray was talking in the conference that we've now got. It was interesting that way back we had these laws to stop children working long hours. Actually, we now have a situation where in the UK, certainly 16 year olds could be working longer hours than their parents in a full time job. Because they could be in a full time job, which is a 35 hour week job, and a 16 year old could be working easily 40 hours a week. So whatever happened to the laws about, you know, not this is this is oppressing children. And I'm deliberately using the word children in this context because that's what people would say. It's about there's a child. So it's a child. And the, the rights of the child should include not having an excessive work pattern. So therefore, and that anyway, learning and work don't go together. You know, back to Coco, you know, or I was reading stuff on the Sudbury schools, you know, about people learning to write and saying we didn't didn't actually do any writing, but what they did was to learn how to talk to each other and think. So that because that's what writing is, it's it's getting down then those thoughts out of your head. But I do it by dictating into a machine, so I don't write anyway. In the sense that schools talk about writing, and you can forget handwriting for a start. You know, everybody should have computers uh, and be able to write on a computer if they want to, and if they don't and they want to handwrite, they can. But exams should be done in that way if they're doing exams, and no reason why you shouldn't have an open book exams, by the way, for everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to. What's the point? Because <laughs> pe people in real life go and consult things, you know. So you could have a computer which has got access to Google and all the rest of it. What's the problem? You know, it's, that's how you write stuff anyway you know <laughs> so so here's the this it would be interesting to just to touch on this and then we'll we'll wrap it up one of the th one of the distinctions you make in this table is on the in the traditional paradigm people who can memorize a lot of facts are better than those that can't and in the new paradigm you said everyone is important and can contribute in different ways to communities and organizations so this this big emphasis on on memory is something that's really sort of taken hold in the last five years or so with people talking about about working memory and the fact that working memory is limited. And it's this very simplistic model of how a mind works, this idea that's sort of based on like how computers work, that you, the working memory is like the RAM, the random access memory, and then the long term memory is like your hard drive. Right. 
and the, and the, um, it's, so it's a it's a model of the mind, and it's if you look in a brain, like you can't see the little working memory box, and it's not really how how it's not a very accurate model, but it some people find it useful, and you can see why. Um, this idea that working memory is this sort of mental headspace from which we work, and that, that you can you can hold sort of a, a limited it has a limited bandwidth, you know, you can hold sort of you know three or four bits of information, and that you've got this long term store that is that is to all sense and purposes sort of infinite in the, you know your ability to store information and so what the traditionalists argue and i think that they've got a point here they say that you know so so if some people for example would say we don't need to teach knowledge anymore or it's not even important to learn knowledge anymore because you can just look it up but but there's a few things that are wrong with that one being that that you need to know quite a lot of stuff in order to look in order to look up information you need to know mm. quite a lot about about that field already before you it's very easy to be led up the wrong path yeah um and also this idea that um that the limits of working memory only apply to novel information so if you're if you're um if you're working with stuff that you are already familiar with, then you can then you can bypass the limits of working memory because you can just access it from your long-term memory. So, for example, if somebody was to let's say they're doing some complex maths problem where they have to work out that part of the solution is five times six, say. You know, if they have to work that out and count on their hands and they're going 5, 10, 15, 20, then that's using up their working memory. Whereas if they've learned their times tables by rote, then they just know that that's 30 without having to think about it and they can think about the wider problem. And so as a consequence, I think that there's some interesting ideas here and I wouldn't really argue with anything that I've just said. But there are some sort of corollaries that seem that people seem to think follow from this, which is that that it is therefore really, really important for schools to have this knowledge-rich curriculum so that we can build up this rich sort of garden of mental schema of these sort of dynamic networks of knowledge and understanding and beliefs and values and so on so that they can draw on these and not get overwhelmed so that they will will have this. And so it's obviously better to have stuff in your long-term memory than it is to have it, you know, on your smartphone. But one thing that's often, I think, a, a, a bad conclusion that's drawn from this is that any form of discovery-based learning is wrong because there's been experiments done where people are saying, you know, if you, if you teach kids stuff in an explicit way and then you compare that with, like, if you just allow them to discover it for themselves and then we'll test them at the end of that, lo and behold, you find that the explicit instruction is more effective at getting them to pass that test. And they, they use that as a way to say, therefore, anything that vaguely whiffs of discovery learning is is hopelessly ineffective and rubbish. But the thing is that that, that only works when you're when you're testing them on a preordained body of knowledge. If you want to teach them a preordained body of knowledge and then test them on it, absolutely explicitly teach them that. If that's your goal, if you want to get them to pass that test, do that. Um, and allowing them, you know, hoping that they will somehow discover exactly that information that they need to pass that test is clearly not going to work. But but what's so interesting about the work that you're doing and that the happens in SMLC is that it often does follow a very sort of discovery model that these traditionalists would sneer at and scoff at and go oh my god these people have got no idea about how cognitive architecture works in people's minds they're just allowing these kids to fumble around and it's really inefficient and it's 
unfair and that it's widening the, the disadvantage gap, you know, that the, the disadvantaged kids suffer more under a discovery model, you know. So there's this very, very strong narrative that's that's held, it's, it's been sort of amplified in the last sort of five or ten years by quite a small number of, of very vocal, very sort of influential traditionalist thinkers. And now you can see these ideas being replicated throughout the throughout the school system. And with so every lesson that my son does, for example, it starts with retrieval practice. And it's just like memory, memory, memory. We're going to do something that you did last week, something that you did last month, and something that you did last year, so that we can keep all of this stuff in our heads. So people have really bought into this idea that that memory is important um but you know i think that i think that we could prod and poke at that idea a little bit and like you say say yes it's important that not that we know stuff yeah um yeah. but also there are you know is there are very few instances in life apart from when you sit in an exam where you have to where you have to go through this process of doing lots of retrieval practice to increase the efficiency with which we can cram a load of information into a young person's head for the purposes of passing that test um and this is actually even if it even if that's good at getting them to pass tests that's not necessarily setting them up for a healthy relationship to what learning is, which is yeah. not about passing tests. It's something that happens from birth to death. It never stops. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and there's and I cite in the book, for instance, the work now on the social brain, and that thing that they did in the states where um, they uh, taught one group to the test and they did all that instructional stuff, and the other group they said. You, I think there were 15 year olds. You're going to have to teach some 13 year olds this, so you're going to have to learn this to teach the 13 year olds. And and they didn't teach the test at all. And and so what happened was then they gave the test to both groups, and the ones who'd been told not taught to the test actually succeeded better on the test uh, because they they got a better understanding of the of the field. And they, and it was that level of understanding, you know, that made the difference. Because if you're going to teach somebody else something, you've got to understand it. You've got to get a deep learning process. And the the, the process of explain. I think it's in the process of explaining to be able to teach somebody something. You need to have to break it down into small bite-sized pieces, and it really helps you to think for yourself about how this whole set of ideas works. And and if you're mo and you're motivated, it's, it's again, it's harnessing that social thing that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because it's like if I don't yeah. teach this well, then I'm I'm going to look like I've not done my job properly for the people that I've got to teach exactly. this to. So you're harnessing that that social connectivity um, yeah. and making it work for the purpose of learning stuff. I'd be interested to see that research. Did you say it was in Spain? No, no, it was done in the USA, and it was um, the man. He did. I think it's called Social. The book. Uh, it's American guy, and he's a neuro neuroscientist. So it's a neuroscience stuff, you know. So there, there are plenty of counterexamples to the notion that you have to know this stuff before you can go and do it. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples. Um, it's therefore much more complex, as you say. The world works more complex ways than that my final question is what does the future hold what's what's on the horizon for you well the horizon for us is is of course uh, extending our work so we're post 16 program and in post 18 um i'm starting summer schools for students in school so that they can get some help with making some choices and being empowered to choose the right gcses or a levels or whatever and uh we're starting some programs for home ed and we're 
starting a new college. So that's us. In turn, and then there's the world. You know that international democratic education conference is growing. Um, I think next year with the hundredth year anniversary of Summerhill. Uh, there'll be more opportunities to get more visible. So we're trying to get more visible um, and so that people know we exist. We just recruited somebody who's brilliant to do the English. You know, we need an English specialist. Um, and she didn't even know that there was an alternative world, you know, but she's actually brilliant with the students and she'd quit teaching for all the right reasons. Maybe it was terrible and she needed to get out. But she and you know hadn't got a sense that there was we existed or or anything existed that was not the same as a traditional school, so that was kind of a shock. And uh, I think well, you know we somehow got to get more uh, discussion about the future because what I will say is we are a model but not the model of the future. We we can model what could be done and at a, a cost effectively. So we are highly cost effective and because A, we're low cost and high effectiveness and schools are high cost and low effectiveness in my book. Uh, that, that Therefore, uh, we're showing it can be done and therefore it just requires people to uh, get the skin in the game to take the, 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 that metaphor. You've got to, we want people to get involved and not necessarily with us, just get involved with this. And I think it behoves all adults because I believe we've got a real obligation to young people. We are destroying the planet. We've got to think differently about learning. Uh, and it's uh, it's absolutely um, a crucial time for us to be doing that. And so all adults should get interested in this. I could not agree more. And, I, and as I said earlier, I can't recommend your book highly enough. I think it's a brilliant summation of your work in this area today. And I know you've got a couple more up your sleeve, which we will maybe talk about next time. <laughs> OK. Time is a measure of change.